No one believed me when I said I wanted to go to university. They laughed, you know. They said, you cannot come from Africa and go to university. In your own family? Yeah, my white side of the family. I missed Cameroon terribly in Switzerland, even though my life was horrible in Cameroon. But I had made such great friends who had supported me. I felt I knew myself because my color didn't matter. Have you ever been told you can't do it or you're not good enough? for something you really wanted? What if you got that messaging your whole life, starting from childhood? What if abuse, trauma, or racism you've endured created triggers that affect you suddenly at work, at the store, or in your relationships? If you break your arm or your leg, you wear a cast. If you get a paper cut, you use a Band-Aid. But what if your injuries aren't visible on the outside? How do you heal pain that you can't even face and others can't see? Miriam Njoku knows this struggle all too well. The abuse she endured as a child and teenager, and the racism she experienced at school and at work, caused trauma that would cripple 10 people, let alone one. Yet somehow, Miriam not only survived all this, she found a resilience and strength in herself that allowed her to succeed in the world's eyes. What we couldn't see was the continued damage from internal wounds that were never healed and led to her shame and even workaholism. Thankfully, Miriam found the healing she needed to be a whole and healthy mom, writer, podcaster, and African woman. Miriam left a flourishing career in banking and international development with organizations like the United Nations so she could become a trauma-informed coach, helping people free themselves from the burdens of childhood trauma. She's also working to destigmatize mental health in Black communities through activities like her podcast, Overcoming Your Story. If you're looking for ways to heal from your past traumas, or if you want to support someone who needs that healing, Miriam shares ways we can do that using her own personal story. And if you speak French, finally, I have content for you in your language, thanks to Miriam's bilingualism. Please stick around to the end because she has a special message for you. Listeners, I do need to warn you, this episode contains references to childhood abuse and trauma, sexual abuse, and racism. Miriam has endured so much that we had to break it up, and she'll talk specifically about workplace racism in the next episode. But first, a quick intro and land acknowledgement. Welcome to Changing Lenses. You're invited to step into the lives of people on the front lines of discrimination, racism, and exclusion, to see the world through their eyes, and to hear their personal story of their fight for social justice. I'm your host, Rosie Young a Chinese-Canadian, immigrant, cis-straight female with invisible disabilities, and I am passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you also want to see social change happen? Then please join me in Changing Lenses. Each episode is hosted on colonized land that was taken from many Indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I seek truth and reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit and Métis people of Turtle Island, and I call upon us all to decolonize our thinking, not just our systems. Now please, enjoy the episode. Hello, Miriam. Welcome. It's so good to see you. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you today. Hi, Rosie. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a great pleasure. We've been planning this, right? 
Yes, we have. Yes, I'm super excited. And before we actually get into it, because I know some of the topics we'll talk about today are pretty sensitive. I want you to know that this is a safe and comfortable space. I want you to feel safe and comfortable and to be able to be honest and real and vulnerable in our conversations. So I commit to you and our listeners that this is a safe space and I invite you to keep me accountable uh, to being respectful and non-judgmental, and to definitely let me know if I say or pronounce anything incorrectly. Thank you for that invitation. I know it is because I've had other interactions with you, but thank you. Thanks, Miriam. So Miriam, I just want to dive right in because there's so much I want to talk about in your story. And first off, I really love the fact that you say in your self-described bio that you are an African. And you mentioned that before you even say you're a mother. I don't know if that was intentional or anything, but what does that mean to you to be an African? I think it's the major part of my identity. I was born in Cameroon where I grew up for 13 years before moving to Switzerland. And I define myself first as an African, not necessarily as a Cameroonian, but as an African, because I think we all come from somewhere and Africa is my home. Africa shaped me. Africa gave me my values. Africa showed me that my skin color did not define me. And I am so grateful for that because I think I have a step back when it comes to when other people try to define me. And I know of a time when my skin color never defined me. I'm grateful to Africa for that. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. I've had the pleasure of actually visiting a few countries in Africa when we both work together, right? And the same organization. And I'm kind of ashamed to admit that I definitely had stereotypes and certain ideas before I went to Africa and realized that it's not how it's portrayed in movies. I won't say anything more because I'm curious what you've experienced in terms of common myths, either against yourself or against Africa in general, that you encountered when you went to Europe and North America. So growing up in Cameroon, my life was very difficult. I had a very, very difficult childhood, but there were two things. So there was my personal history, my personal story, and my family story, and the story of being Black. So in Cameroon, I never had a problem with my skin color. That was not the most defining thing. It was being honest, working hard, trying your best, just being a human being. And for me, when I moved to Europe, I stopped being a human being and I became a Black person a black woman or a black girl. I was a teenager. And that didn't come with positive stereotypes. I wouldn't have minded if it was maybe just to label me and it didn't have consequences. What I noticed straight up at school was that they wouldn't, for example, give me a test to see my level of education because they told me kids who come from Africa, they don't go to school. So they know. I was totally uh, confused so I was speaking English in Cameroon. I came to Switzerland. I had to learn French. But for me, it, it didn't mean I, I became stupid. I still had knowledge, but just in one language and not in the other. I just had to translate the knowledge into another language. So for me, I, I just thought it was a matter of time before I knew the language and then I translated the knowledge. But I was not given that opportunity. My teachers, they wanted me to do an apprenticeship. And I knew coming from my childhood trauma, that the only thing I had going for me was school. School was the most defining thing in my life. I come from a family where people cannot read and write. And because my uncle forced me, where at one point, every evening I had to sit with my book open on my lap and look into that book. 
I couldn't speak unless I was spoken to. So sitting there with the book, at first I was bored, and then I started reading in this book, and I got better and better at school. So when things were not falling apart, crumbling around me, I had school for me. It was what defined me. And I come to Switzerland, they tried to take that from me. So for three years, I went to every single school in my little town where I immigrated to, because they would put me in a level like people who would do an apprenticeship. It's crazy because they had determined already at 11 years of age which kids could go to university and which kids could not go. For having been through all the system, all the immigrant kids, they were bonded in the path that led them to working in stores. And then the next level were people who would go to technical school and do an apprenticeship. So I, I was with the, those people too. You had Swiss and immigrant kids there. And I, I was thinking, wow, at 11 years of age, if you're not lucky as an immigrant that your parents can advocate for you because they don't understand the system, where well, you're lost already, actually, because you're already streamed into a path that will block you later from going to university. Wow. So we've heard some of that in the media here in North America now, like the stories, people who have black skin have experienced this their whole lives through generations, but we're just starting to hear this now as a white society. And it's very telling that it's not just North American, that in which city was it in Switzerland that you immigrated to? So I immigrated to a small town called Yverdon-les-Bains near Lausanne. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. where I lived for 10 years. And uh, I knew that I was not seen. Miriam was not seen. It's the mm -hmm. black girl. The blackness was seen. And I was defined by that all-encompassing blackness. And they couldn't see Miriam, who liked school in Cameroon, who in a class of 100 was like the best student or the second best student. No one wanted to hear that. They knew that people from Africa don't go to school. <laughs> And they actually told me that. So it made me very rebellious. And I was out to prove something. I was really obsessed. I was working around the clock. I wanted to prove to them they were wrong. And I think it shouldn't have been like that. But in that year before going to high school, I was actually the second best student in my class, even though I was learning French, German, math and everything. My teachers, they apologized to me. They said, uh, they never knew it was possible. At the time, I didn't realize the violence because you have to see that my teachers for three months when I came to that level with the rich kids and everything, every Monday when people were going out for recess, my teacher told me to stay back. And she would ask me, do you want to go back to the level you were in before? You know, I would tell her, no, I don't want to go back because they kept putting pressure on me that I would fail. I was not in my place. I should go back to the level before. And I refused. And at the end of the year, I was the second best student. So I caught up with everything and I passed my exam to go to high school. And in high school, I started at the beginning. I was not catching up. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> So I'm just thinking about, because for our, our North American listeners, they may not be familiar with the schooling system. So when you say secondary school, how old were you uh, when you went to Switzerland and started schooling there? 13 years old. Okay. So 13. Yeah. So in North America, that would be our grade eight, mm. starting to go into high school, right? Yeah. I didn't realize at first when you set the level. So physically, the classes were separated with basically like the rich kids that were going to be the bankers versus yeah, yeah. who the teachers thought would be the dumb kids that would just mm -hmm. not have a great career. Wow. Yeah. And I visited everyone because they put me with the kids who would like stop school. And, and there you found all the immigrant kids. It was maybe one or two Swiss kids, but all the immigrant kids were there. 
And actually that class was a great class for me because I felt very comfortable. The teacher was really good. My classmates were amazing. At the end of the year, I was like building friendships, you know, but I had an obsession. I wanted to go to university. I didn't know what I would study, but it was too important for me. It, it's as if going to university would give me the value my parents didn't give me. So can we talk a bit about what it was like for you growing up in Cameroon? I feel like I almost started at the wrong end, but I was just so fascinated by that African identity that you brought with you to Switzerland. This is also what I think I want people to dispel the myth that, first of all, Africa is just not one big uniform place where everybody's the same. It's made up of many, many different countries, very different cultures. And so what city were you in in Cameroon? I, I was born in Northwest Cameroon, but I grew up in many different places. And even in Cameroon, it's very diverse. Even my story, I wouldn't say it's all over Cameroon, how my personal mm. story played out. Mm. Because I grew up seeing kids who had good parents who were taken care of. I was there, <laughs> envious of them. I wanted to be in their shoes. But my mother was married very young at 14 to a man who was a polygamist in our village. They forced her into marriage, I would say. And she had a first daughter that she lost at eight months of age. And then she had me. And in that context, there was a lot of pressure on her because a woman who didn't have children, it was as if it was the worst thing, you know. And so they were putting a lot of pressure on her. So I came into the world as a tool. I would free my mother from all that pressure. So I would say that's why I'm very anxious today because I'm sure it was not fun for her. So when my mother had my sister, she ran away. She took us and she ran away with us. And then she left us with our great-grandmother. My mother was not raised by her parents. She was raised by other people. So there's this cycle of not raising children in my family. And that causes so much trauma. There's always this doubt of your identity. If you're connected, if you're accepted of your worth, you always kind of struggle with your worth, right? So we grew up for many years, five, six years, with our great-grandmother in the village. Your grandmother and your great-grandmother, were they also really young when they got married and started yes. having kids? Yes. I see. Yes. Not as an excuse, but I could see why like a 14-year-old or 15-year-old is not ready to be a yeah. mother. And even your great-grandmother would have been maybe 40-something, right? In a way, you could say she was almost the only mature person, hopefully mature, to be able to raise kids, but that doesn't take away from the fact that your mother wasn't your mother as a child. Yeah, I always have this saying in my head that a child cannot be a mother. And that's what my mother was. She was a child and she was overwhelmed. The day she was married off, she was in school that day. So she was in what we call here in North America, elementary school. We call it primary school in Cameroon. So she was in her last year and the police came to school, calling her name. And she came out. They said she had to come. And they took her to my father's compound. And there were people there ready to start a ceremony. And I think that was a recipe for disaster, I would say. So, yeah, we grew up changing a lot. So from my great-grandmother, we, we were raised also by an uncle. And then three years with an alcoholic woman before moving to Switzerland. And... Before moving, I didn't want to move anymore because through all of this, the hope was that my mother would come and take me one day. She never came. She visited and it was really painful because she came and went. 
but she never came and took us. So by the time she wanted to take us, I had been my own caregiver for years. So I didn't want to go. I didn't want any new surprises. So I told my mother, please rent a room for me in Cameroon and let me go to school. That's the only thing I want. I want to go to school. Wow, I'm so sorry, Miriam, that you went through that as a kid. And to the extent that you feel comfortable, because I know right now that's part of your really brave and important work is helping others and helping yourself to continue the process of healing from your childhood and what you went through. Can you tell us a little bit more about the experiences as a child? Maybe what is most memorable to you that informed your desire for education and even a bit the person who you are today? Hmm. My desire for education, you know, when at three and a half years old, all of a sudden, not that they die, but you lose your mom and dad, you're placed with your great-grandmother you had not seen until that day because I hadn't seen her. She was in no state to be taking care of small kids. She was very old. She had white hair. She walked with a walking stick and she was bent and she walked very slowly. So, And in all of that, no one ever explained to me what was happening. I was just thrown in situations and you're trying to understand by yourself. Kids have to have a mirror, parents, caregivers that reassure them. I didn't have that. And um, I think the only thing that I hung on to was... My great-grandmother, she was very, very loving. I was very rebellious. She beat me a lot because I was always escaping into the forest and she was scared. But at the same time, I really felt loved. And thank God, because after that period, it was all chaos. It was chaos. And the school thing, at first, I didn't want to go to school. I learned to read way after other people had started reading. I was angry. I was an angry small child of five, six years old. And since I was not doing well in school, that's why they sent me to my uncle. And at my uncle's, he was very abusive physically, um, very strict. The slightest thing I did, he would beat the hell out of me. So I had to sit there Every evening when I had finished my chores with my school books on my lap. At first I was bored. I was uh, <laughs> rebelling in my mind. I don't want to be here. Right. But since I had no choice, I started reading the books. And I saw that the more I read, the better my grades got in school. So it became the only thing I did well because there was no reflection. I was a good person from my environment. No one told me. You're a good kid. I did not have any sense of self from a caregiver giving me that identity that Miriam, you're this or you're that. I didn't have time to experiment, play, even know what color I like. I didn't have time for that. I was in chores and yeah. So school was the only kind of thing that I did by myself. No one intervened and it worked out. So that's why my identity was so tied to school. Wow. I can completely see that. Mm. And so your great-grandmother didn't know how to read or write either? No. All the adults that you lived with, none of them could read or write. Even your father? He could read and write, but I only lived in his compound until I was three and a half. But he could, yeah. Was, but he obviously uh, didn't bother trying to teach you how to do that. Well, um, <laughs> my father had 18 wives. And when he died in 2005, he left behind 76 children. 
So I don't think with 76 children, even if you could teach, <laughs> I don't know how you could do that, you know? So, yeah. Wow. My, uh, my mouth is hanging open. Okay. So, but the whole time in Cameroon, my mom was involved in my childhood in that she came and visited us every nine months, I would say. But she always left after five days. When my mom left uh, for Europe, at that point, she had decided that her family were not treating us well and she would leave us with a friend's mom. But she didn't do her due diligence because this woman was an alcoholic. I was relieved at first she was not beating us, she was only insulting us. But the truth is, with time, the verbal abuse is worse because that critical voice, that harsh tone, gets internalized and that's what I used to speak to myself for many, many years. It's not totally gone. It's still there, you know. It's less than before. I can talk about it, you know, all the shame and guilt. Yeah, so that critical voice became my voice. My mom, she didn't come back to take us, but she went to Switzerland. And there she met a Swiss man. They married. And then because all this time she was undocumented. So when she married the Swiss man, she had documents. And six months after they married, we came to Switzerland. But three years had passed. So reuniting in Switzerland, she left small kids. And now she has teenagers, very angry teenagers, my sister and I. And actually, there was no space to process what had happened to us. So we were again left with our stories locked in us. The pain, the confusion, there was no space to process and I was just really very angry. And then all the racism in the family, I would say prejudice, not racism, in that no one believed me when I said I wanted to go to university. They laughed, you know. They said, you cannot come from Africa and go to university. In your own family? Yeah, my white side of the family. I missed Cameroon terribly in Switzerland, even though my life was horrible in Cameroon, but I had made such great friends who had supported me. I felt I knew myself um, because my color didn't matter. Like I discovered racism in Switzerland. In, I don't know, I was naive in Cameroon. I just thought, oh, we had the civil rights movement and then apartheid, you know. And I thought it was all over. It was in the past. We had understood. And then I come to Switzerland and I was horrified. I was horrified that racism still existed and the extent of it. So, yeah, I begged my mom to send me back. Of course, she wouldn't send me back to Cameroon. <laughs> Why did you want to go back to Cameroon so badly? I felt with my Swiss dad, it was not, it was not a good situation. He was sexually molesting us. We had a mom we didn't connect to, and there was racism. So I was feeling... At this point, I can be my own boss because I know how to take care of myself. I've been a mom to my sister for years, like really a mom, you know, supporting her, cooking for her, helping her with her homework, like everything like a mom. I'm like, I could just go back, rent somewhere to stay and go to school because that's what I'm interested in. And I didn't have any interests. So, you know, I, I'm like, maybe I'll be in a context where I feel comfortable. And then I go to school and then I try to build myself that way. 
because at that point, I think we needed intense trauma therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my sister and I, we needed to, and we saw doctors, we, they updated our vaccines. No one saw anything because we like, we were so quiet, so polite, so, you know, so no one saw anything. No one saw anything and no one asked. Miriam, I just want to acknowledge again, um, just your courage in speaking so openly and giving of yourself to other people so that they don't have to wait as long as you did to get healing. So thank you for that. I see that, like you said, the words, what's that old saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Mm-hmm. Not true. Not true. <laughs> and the words can, can leave. strike all of that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's even harder because like you said, you could go to the doctor. Your doctors didn't see anything or were blind to things that could have helped you. But even with physical beatings, there would be bruises and scars that people could see with the all the other things that you went through, including the sexual abuse, including the verbal abuse, alcoholic abuse. Those leave invisible scars and pains, wounds, but they're very real, very deep. How did you see that some of those traumas affected how you behaved or thought as an adult? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a very (laughs) powerful question. I think it came first from the shame of the life I lived, just shame of saying this is like I couldn't answer simple questions from, I don't know, university mates when someone would say, oh, is your father still in Cameroon? I wouldn't answer that. How many siblings do you have? I don't want to say I have 75 siblings. No. So at one point I found a parade with that question. I would say my mother had two daughters, <laughs> you know, that that was it. <laughs> because I was just so ashamed. I was ashamed someone would meet my mother and they, they, they didn't speak perfect French. I was so ashamed of that. So I wouldn't let my mother come to anything when that concerned my, my studies where I was with my friends. I would try to avoid inviting people to my to my apartment where I lived with my mother and things like that. So yeah, the shame, the shame and the guilt, you know, like just this feeling that I was broken. And after my bachelor's, I, I had a scholarship or several scholarships to go do my master's at the London School of Economics. And that's where things started crumbling for me because this sense of inadequacy of not fitting in was even stronger because these were like, Kids from some of them were came from really uh, extraordinary backgrounds. I I just felt I couldn't tell my story, so I had um, a Polish version. I would tell people not to alarm them because I was afraid of pity. I felt if I told my story, people would pity me, and that that was worse than I don't know. That was the worst thing for me. The the feeling. I'm like I don't want to say tell anyone this happened to me and they'll pity me. I didn't want pity. But what I didn't know at the time was that I could also have maybe compassion, you know, empathy. I didn't know about that. I only saw pity. I didn't want that. So I would say a light version of, yeah, I grew up in Cameroon. Then I came to Switzerland Then I went to school. And then I had my bachelor's from the University of Geneva. And then I got accepted into the London School of Economics and then I got a scholarship and here I am. <laughs> right? Everything's good. Like you, yeah, and right? it's like you had the same history as other rich kids or kids who didn't have a traumatic background. Yeah. So I, I canceled all the trauma from 
from my narrative of myself. At the time, I took a lot of time polishing myself. If you saw me, I didn't look like my trauma. I didn't look like my past. I looked, I had, I put fake hair because I, I, at the time, or, or black girls, I wouldn't like show my natural hair. So I had this long flowy hair I had all the time that I would brush. I put makeup, not too much, but I put makeup. I was very, very um, slim. I kept myself like that on purpose. And uh, I always dress nicely, even if it's to go buy a baguette uh, opposite my building, I would, I would take one hour to dress myself. It was a way of hiding my traumas, hiding, putting a shield so that no one would see what was behind. So that's how I lived in my 20s, you know, when I graduated university. Starting work was another, yeah, that was a transition that was not easy. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about that. Yes, there's so much here that I think we definitely need a, a part two. So we'll save that for part two because I think there's there's going to be a ton there too. Miriam, I'm just, I really relate to everything you said about hiding and everything looks good on the surface. But people on the outside look at you, they just, by the time you got to London School of Economics, I bet they just saw a bright, beautiful, successful young woman White people probably thought, oh, she beat the odds. She left that poor place of Africa and um, she's one of the few black people who could do this or whatever. They thought All they thought was somebody successful and they never bothered to find out beneath or you, you wouldn't let them also because of your trauma. I'm wondering for, I mean, things have come some ways around even mental health and how supportive people want to be or are more aware that there's stuff below the surface that we don't know. Because it's not safe for people who have experienced trauma, they're not going to just tell people this, right? But as a person who wants to be compassionate and maybe is just not aware, for friends and family of people who may have experienced trauma, what are some signs maybe that they could see? Do you have any advice for people who want to be supportive to people they care about who've experienced trauma? Yeah, I would say if you have that friend who always... You know, they never show anything, always so polite. They always have the right thing to say, but something that wouldn't actually betray their real feeling about something or who are very calm, you know, very put together. I just felt as if I never really shared my real opinions. I shared what I thought would be acceptable in the moment. But I think if someone looked a bit closely, even my story <laughs> There's one person at LSE I told my story to, and from the get-go, he told me, mm -mm, uh, there's something with your story. It doesn't, uh, how do you say it? It doesn't add up. I was like, I was so upset. I was like, how can you say it doesn't add up? It's my story. I know my story. What he meant was that what I'm saying, there's, there's way more to the story than what I'm telling him. And that person, he saw it from the get-go. And uh, at first I was very upset at him. But he made the effort to build a bit of rapport with me and build a bit of trust. And he's the first person I told my whole story to. And today I, I will always be grateful to him because I think until then, I didn't feel as if I could tell somebody else the whole story. And I think from there, I knew it was possible to trust 
not everybody, but to find people I could trust. So I would say um, patience, patience, building trust, because that's the thing with trauma. These traumatized people, they, I lack trust. I lacked, uh, sometimes I still lack trust in the world. I would say if you have that friend or that family member, you never know what they think. They never dare show how they feel. They're always trying to be, even sometimes we can feel they are not okay, but they will tell you they're okay. Hmm, you know, those could be signs. And to get them to open up, I think it's by building trust, you know, by being there, building trust. Yeah, that's what has helped. Mira, you've touched on the important needs for children and how to care for them as a parent. How do you see that your past has informed who you are as a mother, how, how you mother your kids today? You have powerful questions, Rosie. <laughs> I'm genuinely interested. And I think mothers out there probably want to, to know this too. How can they, how, basically, how can they be a better mother to their kids, right? Everybody wants to know that. Yeah. So I have three daughters of seven, four and a half, one and a half. So <laughs> full of energy. <laughs> You're a busy mom. I'm a very busy mom. It wasn't easy becoming a mom because all of a sudden I was confronted with what am I going to transmit to my kids from my past, from my own personal story. It was an obsession at one point. What am I going to teach my kids? I had this obsession of giving to my children what I didn't have and I was lost. But what I accept now is I don't have to be a perfect mother to be a good mother. There's what they call good enough parenting. Uh, we mess up. We have slip-ups, you know. If I have an outburst, I apologize, you know. Sometimes I see that I, I get triggered quickly. I take a break. Mommy goes to timeout too. Timeout is only <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm an advocate for timeout for parents, you know. Take a minute. Go to the room. Breathe. You know, drink a tea and then come back more refreshed and ready to engage with your children. I want my kids to know how to regulate their emotions first, to be able to recognize their emotions, because mm -hmm. I think it's as important as academics these days for me. Mm -hmm. I'm also learning to manage my own emotions because I have many big emotions I haven't processed for years, because I know that what is happening for me inside is not what is happening for my child. So even if I'm triggered by my child, I know that she's being a child. She's not there to trigger me. And so this, all this awareness and letting them guide me. They have three different characters. Their, their personalities are different. So I adapt to the way I see they want me to love them. And I love them in the language, in the way mm. they would receive it as love, right? And uh, I also tap a lot into my intuition, of how I feel about things. And I would advocate for asking for help. That's one thing too with trauma. We don't ask for help because we think it's too much what we other people think. You know, we think it's showing weakness or showing that we are not okay. It's uh, the worst thing that can happen. And uh, asking for help is important. Even if you haven't been through trauma, even for other parents too, sometimes we know, oh, this is what I want to bring my kids. And we don't know how to do it. We just ask for help. There's, there's help out there to support us. I read a lot of books. I'm in groups on Facebook where I can ask questions or, 
you know, to get support from other moms. Yeah, you can have a chat with anyone from around you and we can question these things. Do we want this? Is this what we want to keep doing? It takes a lot of bravery because sometimes like now, if I come and I say this in my family, everybody will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we, knew, we knew you were weird, but really <laughs> you're becoming weirder by the day. <laughs> you see what I mean? Oh, so it's, it's, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> yes. And that hits on something important too, because then even in your own family, you can feel kind of outcast, right? Or you feel like you don't quite fit in. I really re- resonate with that. I'm more bothered now by what I felt was a lack of encouragement, right? And just positive reinforcement. You could do it. You know, we're proud of you. Uh, you're a good kid, whatever that is. There's um, In Chinese culture, there's a lot more humility, I think false humility, and all well-intentioned, but it's also... I, I question how much of that is good child psychology, right? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a child needs a mirror, a mirror, the adults, the caregiver, you know, the, that primal attachment. So it's it's very important in the way a child is built. So even recognizing their emotions, feeling safe, the caregiver gives that to a child. If we don't give that, we feel there's something wrong with us. We are not good enough. We do so many great things, but we don't feel them. It's not attached to us. We Other people see them. They're like, wow, you did this. And then we're like, yeah, well, you know, I will be that. Well, yeah, you know, everybody does that. So it's not, right. you know, mm-hmm. not accepting that. Actually, yeah, everybody might do it, but you did it and it counts, you know? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Miriam, you've already given us so much and our our English speaking listeners, I think will find this very enriching. I've often thought about our French speaking Canadians who I sadly can't um, offer as much to because my high school French is pretty bad. But would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit in French to our French listeners, a word of encouragement that you really want to leave for people, especially people who've been affected by trauma? Mm -hmm. J'aimerais vous dire que Quelque chose vous est arrivé et il n'y a rien de mauvais en vous. C'est quelque chose qui vous est arrivé sur plusieurs années qui, qui fait que vous vous sentez um, brisé. Mais sachez que si vous reconnaissez ce qui s'est passé, vous comprenez les effets que ça, ça a sur vous, vous pouvez commencer à guérir de ces blessures d'enfance. Tout n'est pas perdu et... J'espère vraiment que en partageant ces histoires difficiles, vous allez vous sentir moins seul. Vous allez vous sentir il y a quelqu'un d'autre là dehors qui vous comprend. Parce que pendant des années, j'ai pensé que j'étais seule dans mon histoire. J'étais j'étais seule dans mon esprit. Je me dis je suis je suis quelqu'un de brisé. Personne ne me comprendrait. Personne ne me comprendrait. C'est c'est ce que je me disais. Mais en fait, nous sommes beaucoup là dehors à porter ces histoires difficiles. Il faut juste oser en parler, oser briser le silence, oser se mettre de, dehors, oser dire à un ami, un proche, un parent, un professeur, oser en parler en fait. C'est le début de la guérison, de la liberté. Voilà, merci. Merci beaucoup, Myriam. <laughs> Merci, Rosie. Bits and pieces of that. <laughs> Miriam, I treasure you. I'm so thankful and grateful that 
you uh, were able to come on uh, this podcast today on Changing Lenses, you definitely lifted some blinders from my eyes and showed me a different way of looking at trauma and a different way even of thinking about parents and kids and how that affects us as adults. So thank you so much. You were you're a blessing. You're such a blessing to us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you said this was a safe space and it feels like that. So thank you. That's the best thing I could hear. I, I can imagine there'd be lots of questions or you know, people wanting to follow up or even get some support from you um, because that is what you do now. You offer support to people. Uh, I know you have a website um, and that's where people can probably go to first uh, to find out more and, and how they can engage with you. We're going to, uh, for you who's listening, we are going to have all of the links up on our show notes. So uh, don't worry if you can't catch it all right now. Uh, but Miriam's website is miriamjoku.com. So that's Miriam, M-I-R-I-A-M-N-J-O-K-U.com. And Miriam, I know you're also on all of the socials. What's the best social to reach you on right now? Instagram. Yeah, Instagram underscore Miriam Joku. Okay, yeah. wonderful. And also LinkedIn. So, okay, great. Yes, LinkedIn and Twitter as well, right? Yes, yes. Oh, everything. We can, we yeah. can do it in lots of different ways. Okay. Most definitely. <laughs> and I didn't say it, but laughter has helped. I've been, uh, I've laughed a lot in my life, I laughed at myself, laughed at others, laughed at how people work. The mannerisms, the way of talking, I've been <laughs> laughing, you know, it has helped. It has been very uh, healing. Yes. I, you <laughs> know, I see you as a person of laughter. Like when I met you at work, we're all professionals. So no, we don't talk about personal things, but um, I, yeah, I just see you smiling all the time. You seem full of life, full of joy and just goes to show that whatever you've come from, there is healing, there is hope. And you're offering that healing and hope to other people. So amazing that you're able to give back out of your, out of bad circumstances come, come good things, right? So yeah. thanks. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for your kind words. So we look forward to hearing you again in part two. And to our listeners, we hope that you will join us for the next session because we are going to talk more about um, how the past can also affect us at work and some of the discrimination and exclusion we feel in the workplace. So don't, uh, don't miss that episode that will be coming up next. Thank you, Rosie. Thanks for joining us. I hope we helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. And if you want to talk about today's episode with a safe community or ask me questions directly, please join our Changing Lenses Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. This episode was produced and hosted by me with associate production by William Liu and post-production by Q9. Until next time, I'm Rosie Young, your guide to changing lenses.